So everyone, welcome to our Saturday Dhamma group. Where we get together to study the Dhamma. Study not only intellectually, but study practically. So we're trying to understand the Dhamma, trying to see the Dhamma for ourselves, to free our minds from the cloud of ignorance, and to gain that understanding that comes through experience and familiarity. So we don't have video for this session. We put the text up as a reminder. Words are powerful. They're a reminder. So when you see the words, it's a reminder to you. First reminder is that you're welcome. Everyone is welcome here. You don't have to feel awkward unsure if you have questions if you have good questions feel free to ask them but good questions we're, we're here to field questions about practice about meditation practice specifically about meditation practice in our tradition there's not much i can say about meditation practice in other traditions so somewhat limited here But before the questions and answers, I will give a little talk on the Dhamma. So today we were studying the Chulakopalaka Sutta, Jimanikaya 38, I think, 34, maybe 34. Thirty-four. Gopala is a, a is a cowherd, like a shepherd only for cows. And the sutta basically says that the Buddha was a great cowherd who herded all of his cows across the river because he knew how to cross. He knew where to cross. But the sutta separates the herd of cows into groups. And the groups represent people on different stages of the path. All the cows cross over, but some of them cross over first. Some of them are more, are stronger, more powerful, more, more enlightened. Something I don't talk about that much is the stages of 
stages of the path. Sorry, by stages of the path here, I mean stages of enlightenment, actually. Should have made that clear. When we think of stages of the path, we usually think of prior to enlightenment. But prior to enlightenment, one isn't actually on the path yet. All that work we do to become a sotapanna, we're not yet on the path. So by stages of the path here is meant people who are on the path, people who are crossing over. And this is useful for people who haven't reached that stage yet, of course. This this isn't doesn't rule out any use for those who have not attained it. In fact, that's the main point of teaching this is for people who haven't attained it to understand understand what it means to become enlightened. Enlightenment in Buddhism is a gradual process. It's not an immediate thing where you're one day you're one moment you're not enlightened. Oh, next moment you're fully enlightened. I'm not. No, and in fact these these progression is quite telling. It, it is a good thing to, it is useful to understand by its very nature. Because when we talk about enlightenment, our focus is quite often on craving. Craving is the cause of suffering, desire, we think. I think Buddhism is about getting rid of desire. And that's true in a sort of a summary sort of way. But it's not our first objective the first stage on the path a sotapanna hasn't done much in the way of getting rid of desire that, that's not fair I suppose the types of desire that can arise for a sotapanna are limited but a sotapanna could still be lustful a sotapanna could still get angry Not as angry as before. They'll be much more pure and peaceful in their manner. But the the the, the quality of a sotapanna, the salient quality, is the freedom from delusion of certain sorts. It's the understanding that comes. And so this is really one of the most important points a new meditator should understand. Because we talk a lot about greed and anger, about our emotions, our reactions. But the goal is not to change our reactions, not, not the direct goal. The first goal is to understand, to see our reactions, to see how we react, to see what that causes, to understand what it means and what it causes to cling to things, to crave for things, to react to things, to get upset about things, to stress about things. The whole practice of mindfulness is about understanding because it's that understanding 
that paves the way for the higher stages of enlightenment. Someone who has seen Nibbana for the first time is called a Sotapanna. They've had an experience of cessation that is total and complete and that is based on insight into the nature of reality. But they can still have greed and anger. They still have some delusion, conceit. What they don't have is wrong view. They won't ever believe again that there's no consequences to their actions. They won't ever believe again that there's some kind of soul in our being that exists moment to moment. I don't have any wrong view. They won't have any wrong practice. They won't have any idea that you should pray to a god to become enlightened or make sacrifices or perform rituals or keep certain rules and precepts. They'll understand that the only precepts you need to keep are the ones directly related to ethical qualities of mind, killing, stealing, things that relate to greed and anger. And in fact, the precepts aren't the important part. The important part is the state of mind. Precepts don't enlighten you. True ethics is a quality of mind. So you don't need to light candles or incense or give flowers to the Buddha or chant this or chant that. There's no magic. And about meditation, they also see how it's not magical either. They see how meditation is... It's quite logical, quite scientific. Well, logical, it, it's not even in logic. It's too simple for logic. There's no logic. It's just real. It's just seeing things as they are. So there's no magic involved where you have to experience this or that or do this or do that. Like the mantra is not some magic incantation it's just reminding yourself hey this is pain and they don't have any doubt so Dipana has no doubt about the path because they've followed it they've come to the end of it they've seen the end of it so they have meant much further to go much more to do but they know the way this is the goal. If you reach this goal, you've you've already guaranteed yourself to cross the stream. You're one of these cows that is crossing the river. Second stage. The second stage is also instructive because it says, well, at that point, of course, your your work is not done. Your work has just begun. At that point, you you work towards the attenuation of greed and anger. Now that you've established yourself in the path of wisdom, you apply that wisdom to overcome your bad habits, to clean out the cobwebs, 
it's like cleaning house. So tapana is you open the door and you say, oh, you see what needs to be cleaned. Maybe you never looked before. You open up the room and you see it needs to be cleaned. Sakitagami is where you clean out all the smelly, ugly, rotten stuff. So a Sakitagami gets rid of all the trash. Sakitagami is free from coarse forms of greed and of sensual desire and and hatred. They're very refined. So the path of Sakitagami is one who one which involves refinement of character. It involves the attainment of Nibbana as a means to refine one's character through the appreciation and the familiar familiarization with the super mundane. One, one lets go of the mundane, simplifies one's mind, frees oneself from coarse attachments to sensuality. The third, once one has done that, of course, the third stage of the path, an anagami, is when one follows the sakadagami path to its fulfillment and completely eradicates sensuality and, and aversion, anger, hatred. Patiga. So an anagami is incredibly pure. An anagami is pure, never gets angry, never lusts or desires or craves, never craves for sensuality anyway. So the anagami path we have the anagami is once you have freed yourself from sensual desire and aversion there is still desire desire for becoming and desire for non-becoming so there is a pull towards becoming this or becoming that or a pull towards removing this or removing that, having having non-existence. So when things are not the way you wish them to be, an anagami can still wish for them to be different. An anagami still has conceit. Yes, even an anagami can still think of themselves as higher than others or beneath others. They still have some vestige of attachment to ego. Of course, an anagami, even a sotapanna, can't have wrong conceit. Well, there's two kinds of conceit. There's conceit that is erroneous, where you're greater than someone, and, or where you're less than someone and you think you're greater than them, or you're not equal to someone and you think you're equal to them. Meaning, based on what you know about the person, you you think of your qualities as better than theirs. You compare your qualities and their qualities and you say your qualities are better. 
even though that comparison is, is wrong. That in fact, even from what you know about them, their qualities are better than yours. It doesn't refer to when you don't know what the qualities of another person are. But an anagami or a sotapanna even could never get that wrong. They would never uh, inaccurately portray themselves. But they still have this ugliness of comparing themselves, holding themselves up as higher than others, who they are really higher than, right? Just because you're higher than someone, like like more refined, better character, better person kind of thing. You know, it's, it is true that some people you can objectively say are better. There's no question. Some people are better. That's a very complicated topic, but but not so hard. It's quite clear. Some people are cruel and miserable, mean, have very bad habits, and other people are kind and generous and compassionate. I mean, mostly we're a mix, of course. The point is, even a sotapanna, even an anagami, can still hold themselves above others or below. They can also feel self-conscious, comparing them to enlightened beings and feeling inadequate, feeling like a fraud. That's conceit. Feeling unworthy. An anagami still has all of these. And and something called udacha, udacha. They, they are also restless. An anagami's mind can still flit here and there. They can still speak useless things. Even an anagami can say things that are useless. But an arahant, the final stage of the path is an arahant. The Buddha was an arahant. All of his arahant disciples followed in his path. Freed themselves from any sort of conceit. Freed themselves from any sort of ignorance. That's the final one. Freed themselves from ignorance. freed themselves from any desire for becoming or non-becoming, freed from themselves from any defilement. An arahant is the most refined state. There's, no, there's nowhere further to go because of only the last one. The rest are, of course, come along with it, but ignorance is the point. That only, only in the presence of ignorance only because of an, a lack, a paucity of understanding, of, of familiarity. And I use the word familiarity because I want to drive home that it's not intellectual understanding. It's understanding through experience and observation. Becoming so familiar that you just get it. You say, it, it's like that. How do I know? Because... I, I'm thoroughly familiar with it to the point of, of uh, well, complete certainty. When you have that, when you have that complete familiarity and understanding, you're not only watching, but you're seeing because of your clarity of mind, your quality of mind. 
And when you see, then you free yourself. At that point, there's nothing more to be done. But what I think is best about these teaching these path, these stages of the path is, is how it shows the orderliness of the progression. Some people talk about being worried about speaking nonsense, saying things that are useless. And you should be, of course. But you shouldn't feel bad because even an anagami still has trouble with that. And it's, it should never be your first concern. Your first concern should be things like lying. Well, even before that, let's say, well, no, things like lying, the, the coarsest. But most importantly, should be seeing clearly, seeing your, your, your issues, seeing your failings, your foibles, understanding your mind before all else before you fix and you never really fix but before you even attempt to refine your character the only refinement you need is refinement of vision so when a meditator is sad or, or frustrated because they because their defilements appear to not be waning or disappearing they should understand that that's not the first goal. That's not the most important thing. It's not actually possible until you see clearly. It's only through seeing, through familiarity, that we're able to overcome these states. And another nice thing about the sutta is it adds a fifth group. So for those who haven't attained this state, they still cross. They may not cross in this life, but because of their their confidence, their appreciation of the practice, and, and their wisdom that they've gained from the practice, even on a mundane level, even through the practice of meditation on a limited scale, the Buddha said even those people cross. They may not cross in this life, but they have sown the seed. They're like the weak newborn calf. What is said then, and and because they hear the mother crying for them on the other side, they hear the mother cow crying for them. So, like we hear the Buddha teaching to us, and all the arahants teaching to us, it guides us to the other side as well because of our confidence our appreciation, and because of our understanding of the Dhamma. So those are the stages of enlightenment, the stages of those who are on the path already. And that's the Dhamma for today. Now we'll continue on with questions, if people have them. Looks like there might be a few. Okay, let's begin. At one point, is it overdoing noting every little thing? I've had a seemingly counterproductive amount of struggle getting back to the stomach, and any time I do get it back, it feels like I've forced it. Well, most likely that, that means there's a lot of things, right? And then you would say something like distracted, distracted. If that's the case, it's most 
likely that you're distracted. So say distracted, your mind is not focused. Say distracted, distracted, restless. Try and note the attachment. If it's a struggle to come back, then that's because there's some attachment somewhere and you have to note that liking or disliking or worry or stress or so on. Usually problems like this is because of things you're not you're not noting. Try and go over all the things you might be missing. Make sure you're noting what you're actually experiencing. But restlessness works if you're overwhelmed. You can, I mean, it's common in the beginning to be overwhelmed and restless, distracted. How do you motivate yourself to be mindful throughout the day and do the practice? Is it just constant reminding to do so? Is there a particular thought or idea that could increase motivation? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways. Um, the, the best way is to live with people who are also mindful because that's a good reminder. But ultimately, you just have to do it. There is no shortcut. I think one of the problems we have is we're kind of inclined to believe in uh, deus ex, however you say it, deus ex machina, the idea that God is going to come in and solve everything. We've been sort of conditioned in our culture to believe in a happy ending or, or in doom and fate. We watch movies that are happily ever after, but there is no happily ever after. There is nobody going to save us. There is no ending. It's not even, it can't even give up, right? Suppose you give up. Like someone says, I'm I'm useless, I just can't do it, I give up. I mean, tough luck, you can't. There's, there's no giving up. You give up and you give up and you give up and eventually you're going to have to say, okay, I'm done giving up, I'm going to try because it just never ends. That's samsara. There is no end. And so you can't even give up. You can kill yourself, you can kill yourself a thousand times, you'll just keep coming back. It's like Groundhog Day pretty much. Until you until you graduate, until you change your behavior. I mean, Groundhog Day is a great movie. Buddhists talk about it. It was a great movie because of the. I mean, the moral is that he be, he he finally realized that he he couldn't just give up, and he also couldn't just do whatever he wanted. That wasn't the prop. That wasn't the way that is in line with reality. Reality actually contains ethical behavior. I've completely gone off track with your question, but um, I, I think it's good motivation to remember that this is the this is the way of nature. You know, there's there's no uh, arbitrariness or, or specificity to Buddhism. Buddhism is just a, a way of practicing that accords with the way things actually are. It's not... Um, inconsistent with reality, like so many practices might be. Are the touching points meant to be exact or just a general guideline? They're meant to be exact. And, and exactness in, in a meditation course is, mo is at least partially related to following orders. When you follow orders, it helps you let go. When you do things the way you want, it's, it's to your detriment because um, 
it, it allows for partiality and um, it, it sort of feeding your 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 boredom. You get bored doing it this way, so you do it another way. But when you have to do it the same way and it's not a way you chose to do it, boy, you got to face a lot. So do things exactly the way they're taught in all in all parts. It's, it's helpful as a practice. How do you balance time of meditation among sitting, walking, and standing meditation? Standing meditation is rare. It's not usual that we recommend for people to do that. We recommend doing walking and sitting as the Buddha did in alternation at 50-50. Walking first and then sitting. Strong negative feelings often come up at the end of meditation for me. I note them arising, but do not see them ceasing. This can create the impression that they are eternal. What should I do? I don't know how you get that impression because they, they come up each time, which means they had to go away before they could come up. So I would say in that case, note them a little longer so you can see them ceasing. I mean, they absolutely do cease because otherwise they couldn't arise again and there couldn't be plural there couldn't be more than one because there can't be more than one at once so they have to cease for the next one to arise but it's okay i mean you don't have to push to see the ending or see the beginning just note things try and note them from beginning to end and sometimes you'll see the beginning clearer sometimes you'll see the ending the buddha said this Sees the beginning, sees the ending, sees both the beginning and the ending. It's fine. You'll, you'll eventually see it all. You don't have to push it or try to see it. You certainly don't get the impression that they're eternal. That's pretty, pretty off base. Do you have advice for feeling your practice has largely been a waste of time because you've been doing it incorrectly and being too stubborn to ask questions at times? Is this typical? It's discouraging. So let's pick this apart. I'm going to probably, it's probably disappointing how I'm going to answer this, but but listen to how I answer this, you see, because there there's... We have to make a distinction between concepts and reality. So you're kind of living in the realm of concepts, of wasting time and so on. But have an advice for a feeling. Well, yes, you have a feeling, and so you should note that feeling. And that probably relates to the last part of your question, which is it's discouraging. So it's a discouraging feeling. If you feel like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not even in, it's not even interesting what the content of that feeling is. Like feeling you practice has been largely, that's not the feeling. You don't feel that. You you think that. What happens is you think that, and then the feeling arises. But the feeling is a discouragement. It's not discouraging. Things cannot be discouraging. You get discouraged, and that's a that's an interpretation, a, a, a reaction. It's a extrapolation. Reality is never discouraging. It is what it is, right? Some people might find it quite encouraging in the same situation. So you, you're discouraged, and that's a feeling. So you can say discouraged or disliking is maybe simpler. Sad if you're sad, that sort of thing. 
if you think you're doing something incorrectly, that's just a thought, but it can also be a doubt, meaning you have the thought and then doubt arises. Am I doing this correctly or incorrectly? Then you should say doubting, doubting. If you're stubborn, um, I don't know, stubborn is a bit nebulous. There's There's certainly the ego or the fear. There's the fear of looking like a, a novice when you ask questions. It's a problem with monks, you know. It's a problem when you're a monk. It's a problem when you're a teacher. You, you kind of feel discouraged to go to others for advice. We shouldn't. We should always be willing to go for advice, hear advice, receive advice, receive criticism. So try and note any feelings there. Fear or stubbornness, I guess you could note. Is this typical is not a question I answer because there is no typical. Life is uncertain. Your your life is chaotic and anything could happen. It doesn't really matter what is typical. We're not taking us. It's not a survey to decide who's like everybody else or not. People ask this question, I think, because they're worried that something's wrong with them. Well, there's lots of things wrong with us. That's That's to be expected. That's why we're practicing. But you are who you are, and it doesn't change what who you are doesn't change based on how other people are. If you're atypical, that that, that doesn't that's not useful information. <laughs> We're not trying to be typical in the first place, but it's not useful because you you are who you are, and you deal with what you deal with, and it it only leads to things like conceit to be concerned with how other people are. So don't worry about that. Just focus on how you are. You never have to worry about if it's typical or normal or so on. It's a common question. I am infatuated with a woman. Sometimes when I am eating or doing some chores, I see her images. How should I note this? Should I note the chores or note the images? You note whatever's clearest, but I mean, at that point, most likely the, the images would be more prominent and, and more dangerous, you see, because, of course, they're going to give rise to lust and infatuation. So when you see the images, try and stop what you're doing and say, see, see. And, of course, any, re any emotions that arise as well. Should one pursue medical procedures to alleviate pain? Noting the pain as part of meditation practice seems like repression, as the impulse to react keeps appearing as part of worldly affairs. Well, that's not true. Noting the the pain is not repression. But 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 what is repression is not noting the impulse to react, not noting the reaction. So if you note pain, but you're actually very upset, don't note pain. Note upset or disliking. That's the point: is that you can't just note the pain, or else you will be repressing by ignoring what's more prominent. It's like you feel some pain. And you hate it, but instead of noting the hating, you just note pain, pain, but you note like pain, pain. My teacher used to ask this, he used to say, do you note quickly, like you want it to go away, like pain, pain, pain. You have to note slowly and patiently. Should we note sexual feelings even if we feel embarrassed? Yes, of course. Embarrassed is just 
regarding ego, but you should know the embarrassed as well. Worried, disliking, embarrassed. You spoke about not focusing on purifying the personality, but instead focus on getting right view first. How do you deal with moments where you recognize unwholesome states, such as resentment or anger, especially when you have difficulty getting out of those states? Well, that's the thing is, our focus is quite often on getting out of those states. And so you say difficulty getting out of them is because your focus is all wrong. Your problem is trying to get out of those states. And that that's what meditation, where med mindfulness differs from most of our methods of solving things we're not trying to fix things we're just trying to see it so rather than trying to get out of those states at all you have to learn to just try and see them clearly that's how you eventually do get out of them through seeing them clearly so how you deal with it i mean how you deal with it is have be someone who has already done a lot of training right because when you do get angry, there's really not much you can do. You can try to get out of it. You can try to repress it. It doesn't really help. Um, ultimately, it's just a matter of training. And when you have enough training and enough practice, they don't even arise. Anger and resentment doesn't arise. Does meditation get easier as you age? I'm 27, and I feel like it's very difficult with how much thinking I do. Everything seems so intense. So meditation or mindfulness meditation isn't designed to be easy. It's designed to challenge you. So don't be concerned with that. Be encouraged by the challenge. You have a challenge ahead of you. So find a way to challenge yourself bit by bit until you become more proficient. And as you become more proficient, you can challenge yourself more. But you should never think of it as getting easier. It should be quite the opposite. Okay, now I'm going to make it harder because I got good at that, at, it, at that level of difficulty. As it gets easier, you have to push yourself harder. Don't be discouraged when it's hard. That's a sign that you're at the right level to, to, to gain something from it. Is burning bridges when people delude you in some way wholesome? Is leaving people after a conflict so that they cannot reach you considered appropriate? I wouldn't burn bridges, um, but Cutting off contact from your side is, I think, often the right way to do things. But making it so that they can't reach you, it depends. I mean, I think in a worldly sense, you sometimes have to do that. But I think in a spiritual, on a spiritual level, um, we should never cut anyone off totally. I mean, practically speaking, you have to, for many reasons, of course. And certainly, some people are just unreachable. But for an arahant, let's say, let's go to the extreme. If someone were totally enlightened, they would not have any need to cut anyone off. They would not have any concern for 
their own well-being, safety, etc. But in order to get there, you practically you probably have to cut off a lot of people. I mean, ultimately, you should be fairly discriminating in terms of who you spend time with, because they will affect you, and you will affect them. It's, you 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 can just drag each other down if you hang out with the wrong people. Will you sometimes be unaware of your development? I suppose. I mean, it's a bit of a... I don't know why you need to... I don't like to answer the question because, I mean, theoretically, no, but practically, yes, I guess. Like, of course, there's going to be times where you're going to doubt your progress. But usually that's like just because we have very bad memories about these things. We're good at we're, we're good at deluding ourselves or tricking ourselves. We doubt even after we've gained benefits from the practice. So by focusing on the benefits is often is usually a bad idea. Try and just focus on your state of mind. What is your state of mind now? I have trouble seeing feelings clearly, especially continuously. Do we need to focus on an experience in our awareness and keep checking how the experience makes us feel? No, you don't have to do that. I mean, trouble is just a sign of how challenging it is. It's not easy seeing clearly, and you can't just flick a switch and suddenly you're seeing clearly. It's a problem we have with the meditation practice coming to it new. We try and make it work, right? We apply our same old ineffective methods of forcing, of controlling. We say, okay, I'll just push until I until I see clearly. And and I won't stop pushing until I see. But seeing clearly doesn't come from pushing. It's a much more delicate thing. So you having trouble is you wrestling with self mainly. Most likely it's just ego, trying to control, trying to make yourself see clearly. And so you're actually starting to see clearly that that doesn't work. So you're, you're, you're doing well in that sense, most likely. Just have to straighten that out a little. But no, you don't have to keep checking how something makes you feel. Just try and experience... Uh, try and note whatever you do experience, whatever you are clearly aware of. I just can't come back to the stomach for more than three seconds. I note thoughts and feelings, but I'm not able to return to the basic object. Any advice? Well, three seconds is a good start. Work on that. Make me four and then five. It just takes practice. Noting thoughts and feelings, great. Once you note them, go back to the stomach for your three seconds. And when the next one comes, go back. There's nothing wrong with that. See, part of what it does is cultivates flexibility, this sort of agility where you're not stuck on something. Where our minds are so um, unwieldy, cumbersome. We're like a, an ox. And we have to be like an acrobat. You have to be flexible. You have to be limber. 
adaptable, ready to change directions on a moment's notice. An enlightened person is, is, is able to turn on a dime. They can turn, change directions in a moment. If, if they get new information, boop, they completely forget about the direction they were headed. So the ability to um, move from one object to another and not get stuck on one is very important. And so being able to go back and forth like that is it's perfectly valid practice. Just keep trying to go back or keep going back for the time that you can. But then, of course, as soon as you're distracted, go back, go off again, go note the thing that distracted you. Is sarcasm or telling jokes breaking the fourth precept? Breaking the fourth precept requires you to intend to deceive the other person. So technically, if you tell a joke, like in the sense that you say something that's not true, and the joke is that once the person believes you, you say, ha ha, I was just joking. I fooled you. You've technically lied to them. I would say that's technically wrong. Now, it's not terribly evil, but I think that's something we should refrain from. We should not say things. If you say something sarcastically, your expectation is that the person knows that what you're saying is not true. That's the whole point of sarcasm. In fact, if you said something sarcastically and the person said, oh, really? Then you'd be disappointed because they didn't understand your sarcasm. Um, but But jokes can cross the line in a lot of if you say jokingly and expecting the person to believe you to not believe you expecting the person to understand it was a joke that's one thing but if you fool someone that's crossing the line How far can one reach on the path if engaged in lay life with career and marriage, no kids? A paying career is demanding, defeating the purpose of detachment, but necessary to afford some basic freedom. Oh, you can go quite far. Just don't, don't worry about that. You, you don't, don't put the cart in front of the horse. Do the work, and your life will change as a result of the work instead of the other way around. You don't have to change your life as a start. That's never the way it goes. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, you certainly could change your life first, but that's not really going to solve the problem. It's more of a both, let's say. Your life changes as you progress. So yeah, certainly your life will have to change if you want to truly progress far on the path, but that change should come as you go. I mean, there's no should. That's not fair for me to say because some people do decide to just go forth. But the problem with that is they do that prematurely often. And you read these stories about quite romantic stories about the Buddha and all these arahants who went forth and gave up everything and became enlightened. But the stories you see in 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 more realistic, uh, well, more often, are people doing that prematurely and then just giving up. 
and it having been a big waste of time. Well, a partial waste of time at least, being the wrong way of going about things because they weren't ready for it. How do I get my son to understand that meditation can help him with his social anxiety? It affects his schooling, and he won't even try it with me. You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You don't get people to meditate. You know, I mean, have a hard time getting ourselves to meditate. What I tell people in this situation is meditate yourself, and meditate more yourself, and be more dedicated to it yourself. And either people around you will follow you, or you'll drift away from them. You can't bring people with you. It may very well be that he is not at all in a state of of wholesomeness. And I don't mean to speak bad about your son in particular, but just because there are children doesn't mean that they're in any state of wholesomeness. It's quite possible that one of our children could be destined to be a murderer. It's not likely if we're interested in Buddhism, but it's quite possible. Ajata Sattu the, the, was uh, murdered his father, Bimbisara, who was one of the purest, kindest, most noble people in the Buddha's time, and his son murdered him. How can we be sure if a bad feeling succeeding a bad act is correct or not, or misplaced? Sometimes I feel my guilt, shame, or anxiety is misplaced. My practice feels incorrect, so I can't rely on that. There's no such thing as a bad feeling that is correct. A bad feeling is still just a bad feeling, no matter whether you've done a bad act or not. If you have guilt, shame, anxiety, it's always a problem. So Buddhist texts do talk about shame and and fear in a positive light, but you can't say that those are shame and fear. They're just the knowledge of that what you did was wrong and that the results will be bad. As soon as you get upset about that, you've committed another unwholesome act. So you have to just note those things. Okay, I have to go. Uh, early today. I'm sorry, I have a student. But um, thank you all for your questions. Oh, and tonight is our bi-weekly monastic um, thing. So I'm going to try to broadcast their broadcast. My efforts to broadcast it myself have failed. So I'm going to try to broadcast to, to, to just screencast what they're broadcasting and see if that works on YouTube. So if you want to watch that, that will be in two hours and nine minutes. You're welcome to come back to our YouTube channel to watch that. Thank you all. I wish you all the best. Sadhu. Uh,